And now, another cup of... The London Fog. Okay, we're back. Hello, we are here. We are here. And it's been an excellent day. This is The London Fog with Kate and Leah. Yes. Do we normally remember to introduce ourselves? I don't think most of the time not, so I've been trying to, at least this time and last time, to to say our name. Yes, welcome. (laughs) Welcome. And we're getting back to our roots. Yes. And we have tea in hand. We are drinking some tea. I don't know why we... Well, I know why we forgot, because it got really hot. Oh, yeah, you know, but now that it's slowly cooling down here in Houston, Texas, barely, Mm -hmm. um, I feel like I can sip some tea. And plus, this is an evening recording. Yeah. Something about it's just comforting. It's nice to sip tea in the evening. So cozy. Get so your cozy clothes on. I'm going braless tonight. <laughs> uh, I don't think that recording. our listeners need to know yeah, that. Yeah, they don't need to see I'm it. I'm sorry. That's definitely for sure. I'm sorry that she said that to you guys. <laughs> I but. can't stop her. I try. I try so hard. Get your fuzzy <laughs> socks on. Put a face mask on. Depending on where you live. Because no, I guess that's true. You know, it could be it could be really hot. Still, still really warm. But snuggle up because this is another episode of the London Fog. Yes, it is. And to get back to our traditions, this is I'm gonna say this wrong. Puka? Is that how you would say that? Puka? P U K K A? Probably. <laughs> We're just drinking the detox tea, which I looked up and it had a whole bunch of like awards for being probably like one of the best teas that you could buy in 2017 just in the grocery. Oh, and I nice. found it to be quite delightful. I like that. It's just an herbal, hence why I think they call it detox. <laughs> it has like fennel in it, so it's kind of sweet. Yeah, because we're getting old and we can't drink caffeine at yeah, 7 p.m. No way. Nope. Mm. So, <laughs> just a little tea for the sipping. Yes. Okay, so I'm really excited about this episode. I did mediocre research, per usual, but (laughs) with some extra snippets. I know. This was a hard episode for me. But wait, first, let's see. Do we have any updates on anything? Let's see. English current events. Don't know any. Um... Well, on the day that this podcast is released, uh, the Duchess of Sussex will be undertaking her first solo engagement. Oh, what is she doing? So the Good Royal, for her. I know. The Royal Academy of Arts is having an Oceana exhibit. Ooh. So it's the first time that any Oceanic art has been exhibited in the UK. Um so she's going to the preview of the exhibition, and nice. if you're in the UK and you're a New Zealand or Pacific Islander, you get to get in free. So, you know, go check out that exhibit. <laughs> Even if you can't go for free, check out that exhibit if you happen to be there. Um, yeah, so it even has, like, the work of artists who joined Captain Cook on his voyages. Like, <gasps> Shut up, that's that so did, cool! Yeah. So, should be pretty cool. It's Don't really first, shut up. Tell first, me more. first solo <laughs> engagement. Um... Let's see, do I know any other royal news? Um, The Cambridges recently went to a wedding. Okay. And Prince George and Princess Charlotte were page boy and bridesmaids again. So cute. Little flower girl? 
No, it's a bridesmaid in the UK. Oh, I didn't know that. But, yeah. They don't have flower girls. <laughs> they use little girls as their bridesmaids. Ooh. Um, so, yeah. So, they... So, I guess this is, like, their third wedding that they've been in recently. This year. Or, no. I guess, when did Pippa Middleton get married? Maybe that was last year. But yeah. They've, they've done it three times. They're getting very popular. Which is probably because... You know, there are prince and princess, and everybody wants to say they had a prince and princess. Well, I guess most people have been relatives, but still. It is yeah. fun to be like, oh, the princess was in my wedding. Yeah, no joke. I'm trying to look up an event to make it sound like I know something, but I, I don't. <laughs> I have BBC News on my phone because I find BBC News is better than, like, CNN or Fox or anything. They tell it's you just how better. it is yeah, because they're not, like, affiliated, so I find that, like, our events that happen stateside, when they report it, it's almost like there's no real politics behind the news delivery. Mm-hmm. So I've just kept it on my phone for more of our current events. Yeah, or like poli- that's so sad. Isn't that sad? Because <laughs> you like listen to Fox and you're all like, oh my gosh, it's one-sided. And then you go and listen to like CNN and it's another side, you know, and who's right and who's wrong, who knows? I don't know. Yeah, that's really sad. But it's a little too much. Um, but I did see that Buckingham Palace, man released over taser key ring error. I mean, <laughs> look it up. It's a real thing. Um, a man okay. arrested at Buckingham Palace on suspic- suspicion of possessing a taser has been released by police. Well, I'm glad he was released. I think so. He was a visitor from the Netherlands. You just... I think it was just a misunderstanding. I hope so. Poor Taser Man. No. But in other news, I got to give the best description of myself today. And I thought it was pretty funny because it brought up the podcast. Um, I just worked out. was at the gym. There's kind of a cute guy at my gym Mm -hmm. who is a personal trainer there. Of course, I walk up and my waterproof not waterproof just my regular mascara i had sweat so much it was completely all underneath my eyes and he was like hey lady yeah he's like you look crazy and he's all like so what is it that you do again i was like oh yeah i'm just a musician who has an interest in neuroscience who works at a wireless infrastructure company who has a british podcast and he was all like oh (laughs) so like yeah that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> That's a weird description of yourself. I mean, the it, thing it works. It but... seems like pretty dang adequate or accurate. I so, like it. thank you. I was actually kind of pleased that I was all like, wow, I'm so diverse. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of musician. Oh, yes. That's, that's what we're our talking topic about today. today. So, this is why I was so excited about this episode. I couldn't decide who to pick oh my gosh so, so i was trying really really hard and yeah, let's first, just talk about that before i we was get started i was gonna pick lily allen because oh, i'm trying yeah. to convince you to go to a lily allen concert with me so i was like oh I that'll oh, be perfect i right. can talk about how great she is and then it'll convince and you to go. We'll go um but i i don't know it's just so hard for me to like find stuff to think about so then i started like looking for musicians that have like weird things in their history because yeah. otherwise i was like what do i talk about I don't know. Lily Allen, I think, was would have been a good one. She's had, like, quite a life, you know, and she's only, like, in her 30s, right? Yeah. You know, she found the love of her life. 
Apparently that didn't work out. I'd love to hear why. <laughs> I'd love to hear why. <laughs> I'm sure she'll tell us at the concert. Yeah. And the last why, time and we that's went. that's why we should go. There was baby bottles. Yeah, because she was having a baby. See? This but... is what I'm saying. The life comes full circle. Yeah. Yeah, no, I had a hard time too. Because I was like, there's so many. I mean, British invasion really was a thing. And they're just mm-hmm. such a slew. I think people just get obsessed that like, oh, it was just the Beatles. But no, I mean... There was Pink Floyd. Basically, everyone who was ever good was British. That's that's what I've learned. The classic (laughs) rock kind of era, there was just so much influence that I think kind of came earlier and first from England, Mm -hmm. and then they came over to the U.S., and personally, I think influenced a lot of our artists here. Mm -hmm. And so then we kind of, within, very quickly, have a lot of good success and great bands that came from that, you know, late 50s early 60s period um of the invasion but then i think i think the british did it as they usually do well and they did it first <laughs> what can i say yes. so like there was that but i i don't know i jumped all over to from recent artists to things that were way too old to talk about so um i feel like things are never too old to talk about. um yeah yours last week like the trial well, from like 1600 or talking about no totally worth it That's but what i'm saying it's never too old i think you should go first this week because i went first did, last week did you i mm-hmm. thought i did i thought i talked about the robbery first about the old guys oh, and then and yours then ended up being old guy. guy okay all right you're right i just it's hard to remember i'm gonna make you go first <laughs> okay so i am talking about joyce Hilda Haddo. Oh, don't know who this is. You're about to find out. So she was born on the 5th of September in 1928. She passed away June 29th of 2006. So she was an an English concert pianist and piano teacher. Cool. So let me just talk about her a little bit. So she was born in St. John's Wood, London. Her father was an antique dealer and piano enthusiast. So... She, you know, he started her in piano really young. Um, so, let's see, she was born in, like, 28. So, in the 50s, when she was, like, early... 28. So, 28 is practically 30. Yeah, so, so she 50, was, like, she, early, early 20s. 20s. Yeah. She started to do a bunch of concerts um, in London and, like, throughout Britain and Europe. Um, she had a, some, like, solo co- recitals, some... She was, like, accompanied by the London Symphony Orchestra, you know. So she she did a lot of stuff. Um, And then she uh, had had students. um, So she was a piano teacher privately and also at a boarding school. Um, She was active in some record for recording for several companies recording studios she worked with the london philharmonic choir so she yeah. she did a lot of stuff That's um, awesome. she her critical reception was mixed um some people thought that she was horrible some people thought that she was okay they basically people thought she had good musical sense but she her performance wasn't awesome yeah kind which of is probably what happens to a lot of people who study music um so anyway so she but some people thought she was marvelous so there was like like i said mixed reviews um but she so she was married to a guy named what was his name uh william barrington coop 
who was a record producer. Hmm. Um, Convenient. I know, right? So <laughs> Most musicians, though, being a musician, like, we pair up. Sometimes if you can find somebody outside your field, like a record, that would be prime. <laughs> but, like, two of the, like, she's a pianist, she married piano, never going to work. Divorced within two years, I bet you. <laughs> <laughs> well, they stayed married, I think, until the end. Um, oh, that's sweet. So she, well, we're just late. Um, <laughs> so, so anyway, so she was like popular in like the 50s. In 1976, she stopped performing in public. Um, so people, there was like a bunch of mystery around why she stopped performing. People claimed she had cancer. Um, I don't know. So they they know she was treated for ovarian cancer in 1992, but it, but... That was the rumor was that she already had it in the 70s, which I don't know if yeah, I, I don't know, so it's really weird. So, anyway, in her last few years of life, there were more than a thousand recordings that she released. Wow. So, she wasn't performing in concert, but mm-hmm. she was releasing all these CDs with like the complete sonatas of Beethoven and Mozart and like all these Rachmaninoff concertos and. Tchaikovsky yeah. and you know just like a ton of like fancy yeah. fancy stuff um, so the recordings were released and um, it was released by her husband because he was like into the recording industry um, that is a sweet deal I would do anything too yes if yeah. there's any record producers out there that want to date me <laughs> well, so send like, an email <laughs> In two th- so starting in 2003, so this is like really the end of her life, because she died okay. in like 2006, Six. right? Yeah. So in 2003, all of her recordings began to get like really enthusiastic praise. Hmm. People were so, so into it. Um, Interesting. Everyone thought it was so great. But a few people in 2006, early 2006, right before she died, were expressing doubt about these recordings because they were they did some like blind listening tests um and i guess that they sounded like other people's recordings um so and this is happening with like a lot of people with recordings released by her husband so um so in early 2006 people were like expressing a lot of doubt about her recordings they found it really hard to believe understandably that a pianist who had not performed in public for decades and was fighting cancer would in her old age produce such a vast number of recordings of all of such high qualities um they had a hard time confirming the details that the recordings were made with an orchestra there was no proof that the conductor credited even existed um but there were still enough people who like remembered her from before yeah. and thought she was amazing that they like really argued with the doubters. Mm-hmm. And they were like, no, she was amazing. And just because she stopped doesn't mean she yeah. hasn't been practicing for the last 20 years, oh. you know. Um, but all of the publicity ma- meant that a lot of CDs were sold. So there was like... There were so, so much business from all of these albums that she released. Yeah. So then she dies in mid-2006, in June. Um, and in 2007, they discovered that, like, th- because they did a bunch of digital 
testing or whatever that in some cases the CDs ascribed to her had been were digitally manipulated published no. published recordings of other artists. No. Oh <laughs> yeah. my gosh, my heart. Some who were well known, some but the most were not that well known. So Is her husband still living? He died in 2014. Oh gosh. So this is in 2007 that this is comes oh, out. So really what happened is that iTunes picked it up. <gasps> so somebody put one of her CD, because you know, like when you put a CD in, iTunes will yeah. tell you what CD you put, just put in. So someone put one of her CDs Someone freaking Shazam that shit. And then oh. iTunes identified it as by being by somebody else. So then the guy who put it in, he was just, he was a financial analyst from New York. Like yeah. just some random guy. He put it in and he was like, wait, like it's supposed to be this guy. And then he like listened to that guy's recordings and like listened. He was like, this sounds the same. So he sent an email to a music critic for Classics Today and Gramophone, the guy who, who had yeah. praised all of her recordings. Oh, no. And he sent an email. So that guy's name is Jed Disler. So Disler says, when I received Brian's email, I decided to investigate further. After careful comparison of the actual performance Simon is, I guess, is the last name of the guy mm-hmm. who it was. Performances to Hado. It appeared to me that ten out of twelve tracks showed remarkable sim- similarity in terms of tempi, accents, dynamics, balances, etc. By contrast, track five sounded different between the two sources. I reported my findings to Mr. Ventura and CC'd the ClassicsToday.com editor. I also CC'd Gramophone's editor plus three of my Gramophone colleagues who had written about Hado. Then I wrote Mr. Barrington Coop her husband. He quickly replied, claiming not to know what happened and to be as puzzled as I was. At at James Invern, I don't know who that is, suggestion, um, Andrew Rose of the audio restoration business, Pristine Audio, contacted me and I uploaded three MP3s from the Haddo disc. His research confirmed what my ears suspected. At least two of the tracks were identical between, uh, between the two and one was not. So, um, so anyway, they did a lot of research, and on each of the recordings published in her final years under her name, the conductor's name was given as Renee Kohler, Uh and, um, they haven't found anyone to know who, like, Who who that is. Uh, there's a lot of people... And Andre Previn, Bernard Hagnick, I don't know, a bunch of classical people that Mm -hmm. I don't know, um, who actually played the recordings. And also the orchestras that she claimed were like the Warsaw Philharmonia and the National Philharmonic Symphony were actually the Vienna Philharmonic and the Royal Philharmonic. Like, it's just, yeah. So. Oh my gosh. So even if she had like any bit of talent, which I'm sure she did. Yeah. But now she's just labeled as a fraud. Yeah. Like, she obviously had talent because she was... Yeah, like, she had at least a at bit least of a name. At least enough to be, like, yeah, oh. like, performing in the 50s. So, yeah. What a so, nightmare. Yeah. Originally, her husband denied any wrongdoing, but then he made a confession in 2000... Like, later in 2007. And oh. it, he said that she was unaware of what he was doing, that he let her listen to the recordings believing that they were her own work because he was like oh these are your old recordings and I'm releasing them for you and you know so she before she died she heard them and she thought it was herself 
Um, oh, gosh. And he said he acted out of love and that he, what he did, started out doing, he said, was pasting portions of other artists, of other pianist recordings into recordings that she made to because, like, she was in pain. So he said that she was, like, gasping in pain. So he would just, like, take a portion to, like, cover her gasps of pain. Um, oh, jeez. And then this that, is not getting better, right? And then like that became him suddenly just and like when he did that, where he just like mismatched it and released it and it sold well. He then started just like oh, taking gosh. Other people's recordings. So there had to be a lawsuit, right? Because I mean, if they got any sort of income from this, the artist that actually performed and the conductor and the orchestra that actually performed. Well, so the, so what happened was so they discovered. You know, that that there was this thing. But he refused to help identify sources of the recordings. He said, whatever I do, it won't be enough. So he just wasn't going to do anything. There are some people, some critics thought that she was part of the scheme because they thought that she retired because she felt like the British musical establishment didn't recognize her talents and she wanted to, like, go trick them. I kind of doubt it. I feel like if she was, like, sick at home with cancer and, like, super old... Yeah, I don't believe that. I can't. But I think people are just, like, mad that this happened, so they're just trying to, like, lash out. So, um, so the British phonographic industry announced an investigation. A spokesperson for them said if the allegations were true, it would have been one of the most extraordinary cases of piracy the record industry has ever seen. Um, so, but the, this is the thing. So... The one of the labels, like one of the guys mm-hmm. that in charge, one of the labels that released it. I guess it was two different labels that released it. Said that he had given a lot of thought to suing the husband yeah. for damages, but he was inclined not to do so on the assumption that he was telling the truth. That the recordings were a desperate attempt to build a shrine to a dying wife, um, and said mm-hmm. that he advised. Laszlo Simon, like one of the main guys whose work was stolen, to take advantage of the publicity to secure more concert engagements. (laughs) Which is like... Yeah. Um, I hope he did. Yeah. And then Uh the police said that... like, So that was like that industry. And then the label wasn't going to take any any action. And then the police said that they were not going to take any action unless a complaint was made by the copyright holder holder of one of the original recordings Mm -hmm. which since he wouldn't release who they all were there was no like no way that the copyright holders could like really really prove it so they couldn't make a complaint so um and since it was mostly people who were not getting a lot of work he the guy the husband who did it said that but this is before he died. He's dead now. But he said he has given up worrying about possible legal consequences and said, I don't consider that I've hurt anyone. A lot of uh, attention has been drawn to forgotten artists. So, like... What? So, uh, I feel really bad for this guy, the last name Simon, who's mostly... It was yeah. his work because it's, like, the record label was just, like, oh, just take advantage of it so you can get more concert dates. And then he's, yeah. like, oh, I gave him some attention. Like, he should be grateful. I'm like, uh... No, that's No, bullshit. because you made... Like, I mean, not a ton of money, but you still were making money off of recordings of his work. And he's, since you, like you said, he's not well known, he's probably not made any money. He's not made any money off of this. Ugh. So, yeah. Anyway. It's ridiculous. But, um, 
But yeah, so I guess that a movie was made called Loving Miss Haddo, um, and it was released on BBC in 2012, like, about this story. So, I don't know. What a downer. You found a really big downer. <laughs> I know. It is a really big downer. I just like to find the downers. I love well, to no, find the Well, no, I was just, downers. like, trying to find, like, some musicians that had, like, some sort of crazy story, and this was the craziest story oh, that I yeah. found. Oh, no, that's a pretty good one. Oh, so... Just so people, like, I guess, know, and I think I've said this before, so I do music, like, that's what I want to keep doing in my life, I sing at the opera and things, so, like, I totally get that, like, could you imagine, like, actually trying to make it as a pianist, making a recording, just getting a recording deal, let alone is a huge deal, let alone it not, like, probably doing that great, just have somebody steal your work and put their name under it and still probably just get a few bucks out of it. But still, it's like that small bit of income. Oh, my heart aches. I know. And the fact that everyone was kind of like, ah, oh, yeah, exactly. just drop it. Who cares? Twisted, uh, screwed up industry. I get so angry. <laughs> That's why I have a podcast. <laughs> to talk about your anger. Well... So are you, is it okay if I jump in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, awesome. Because I feel like ours are, like, well in tune because Um. I was trying to figure out something. At first, like I said, I was, like, looking at a whole bunch of, like, modern artists. But Mm -hmm. I was trying to really find something super British. And the biggest thing that kind of hit me was... England, British tradition of choral music is out of this world. Like, they're really the ones that refined it. Maybe not exactly, like, originated it, but definitely made it what it is. I was talking with this with some friends this last week that there's no great place to study, like, choral work in America. Like, there's a couple of schools that try decently, but nothing comes close. If you really want to get good at choral work, you go to England. Yeah, Um, that makes sense. So I kind of was thinking about that. And then, mind you, I'm not a person that's, like, way in love with choral music. So I had to find that nice middle ground. And that's why I decided to do mine on Benjamin Britten, who is a pianist and composer um, and conductor. So Edward Benjamin Britten was or Baron Britain of Alderberg. This reminds me of Benjamin Button. <laughs> right? <laughs> Which maybe no, he'd have no no syndrome like that. <laughs> um he was born November twenty second of nineteen thirteen. So like the same time, almost like just a little bit before. Um you're a chick lady. Mm-hmm. Uh and he died December fourth of nineteen seventy six. So he was only in his sixties when he passed. But he mostly did a decent amount of operatic work, uh, vocal music, including like choral work, and then orchestral chamber pieces. So he's had an interesting life, though, so that's kind of what I wanted to focus a bit on. So he was born uh, kind of in this weird, complex place in, in his life. Like, his dad was a dentist who didn't really like what he did. (laughs) And his mom was actually, like, a raging alcoholic. And so... Oh, and his dad was also illegitimate. 
So already like his family was not on like the path of being, I don't know, one of the great families. So mm -hmm. his mom tried really hard for him to get to know like the right people and try to build up their home. So that's why they tried to bring music so much into the home. Um, when Britain was only three months old, he contracted pneumonia and nearly died. But the illness left him with a damaged heart and his, uh, the doctors warned his parents that he would probably never be able to lead a normal life. But that didn't seem to be much of a problem. He was like really into tennis and cricket and all of that, which his mother was like, great. My child <laughs> will not die. <laughs> um, especially like when you're told by three months old, like, oh, he's practically going to be a cripple all his life. Well, that was not the case. So... His mom put him in music uh, lessons from an early age, even though he is one of the last composers that was brought up solely on live music. His father refused to have a gramophone or even later a radio in the house. So the only exposure he ever got to music was always live performance. Hmm. So his mom... First had him start with a piano teacher, and then he moved on to viola as he grew older. He was a student at a small dame school, which is practically like, I would say homeschool for when, you know, in the 1920s in England. He would go over, you know, learn a little bit of like arithmetic and how to read and things, but then he would take um, piano lessons. <clears throat> which he said he was always really grateful for. Um, from there, he moved on and went to a prep school in uh, Low Soft, um, and he hated it. Really, <laughs> from day one, he found that like severe corporal punishment was disgusting and it was handed out too lightly, mm -hmm. and it's something that he stood up for as he grew up almost like I say stood up for but like despised and made all of his future music pretty black about how terrible it is to hurt another human being uh. um so all of his music is kind of and traditional um operas are kind of rooted in that message that you know hurting another person is pretty awful um, there's a quote that says some of his recurring themes in opera included the struggle of an outsider against a hostile society and the corruption of innocence, which I think is pretty true because I've been able to be in a couple of his operas and they all kind of have this, That's I'm sad. the good, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I'm the good guy, but the, like the town will point at him and be like, no, you're evil or young guy that does everything right but he can't seem to make any forward motion in life so he just decides to screw it you know <laughs> and i'm gonna be terrible like the rest of the world like it's just about, all about this like corruption black why he turned so black i don't know it kind of sounds like his father like i said just kind of this angst in the family home from his childhood maybe gave mm. it to him so he was there for a while um at the prep school he continued taking lessons, piano lessons. He then uh, met with uh, Frank Bridge, who was Britain's teacher and composer, and showed him a lot of um, spirit and that he had a lot of promise. And 
Though Britain's father was not thrilled by this, nor was the prep school's like head um, headmaster, and they doubted that pursuing a career in composition was a wise thing to do. Which I would still say. I mean, I mean, come on. My parents not looked at a wise me. Thing to do. <laughs> my parents looked at me, and they're all like, "You want to be a musician? Okay, you know, like you do that. You have fun." Um, but. Britain, um, Benjamin was able to find a compromise and say that he would go to public school the following year and then he would make regular daily trips into London to study with Frank Bridge and um, to help with some of his composition and learning. So he learns, he starts to go to the Royal College of Music which is pretty dang prestigious. I mean, his examiners and maybe these words or people don't mean anything to you, but to me as a musician, like his teachers were John Ireland and uh, Ray Fawn Williams, which, like I said, in the musical world, you're like, say what? One person had both of those people as your teacher. <laughs> um, but he he said that he he hated it. He's all like, it's everybody here is amateurish and folksy. And folksy. And the staff, he said, was inclined to suspect technical brilliance of being superficial and insincere. <laughs> so, so he definitely thought he was brilliant. Yeah, he definitely thought he was really great. And uh, I don't know. He never really fit in, I would say, with the Royal College of Music. He did finish his studying there. Um, after he was there, he wanted to do a postgraduate in Vienna to study with Allenberg. Oh my gosh, like another big name because he's... Arnold Schoenberg's student, another big name, but his parents like told him don't do it. And he's all like, okay, cool. I won't. They're like, we've spent too much money on you already. Right? I'm pretty sure every musician's parents all like, um, no. So that just launches him. So we've had crazy beginning of life, kind of with his parents, little pneumonia as a baby, musical upbringing. So now it's just like kind of his life story. He, um, started his first job was with the BBC making music for film and for documentaries. Oh. So he did a whole bunch of things in the early and mid thirties uh, and became pretty popular with that. And it was during this time that he met Peter Pears and uh, he was a tenor. They met actually cleaning out a friend's apartment after they died in a freak air crash. That's a weird way to know. Right? Um, and a weird way to say it. Like, was it an airplane? Was it a, a hot air balloon? I I would like to think it was a... Uh, the ridgeable? What's, what's that called? The the big float? Yeah, what's that thing called? I think it's called the, some of the, a dirigible. I don't think you're saying it really I don't think I'm saying it correctly. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll look that up. <laughs> Um, so they were cleaning out an apartment. They were good friends just to start, just very platonic. Um, come though 1939, uh, Britain started to write for pairs and they decided to go to North America to first go to Canada, but then to go to New York and do some, um, recitals. While they were in the U.S., um, that's when things got pretty terrible with the World War II, with the Second World War. They were advised by the British Embassy to stay in the U.S. and that they were given visas as artistic ambassadors from Britain. 
um, Paris was inclined to disregard that advice and go back to England, but uh, Britain felt like they should stay. So they stayed for a while. They made friends with Aaron Copeland, another big name. <clears throat> and I'm like so froggy tonight. <laughs> and they worked on some work while they were there. He made some beautiful song set, probably one of the earlier ones, Les Illuminations, um, in 1940. And those were performed. But come 1942, Britain decided that he really needed to go back to, to England. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> like, he's been there, even though the war is still continuing. Um, he felt like he needed to go back, that the um, that the motherland was calling. Um, on his voyage over, he wrote a Ceremony of Carols, which is one of my favorite pieces. And, look, I came so prepared. <laughs> I even have... Ooh. I didn't have an example because I couldn't find her real music. <laughs> I even got little... Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't think that's it. That's not it. But that is a um, recording of something of someone else. So this is the very opening of the Ceremony of Carols. So when it's Christmas time, you can listen to it. Because it was December when he went back. That's just the like little bit of the beginning of it. It gets actually really cool. I've been able to perform that twice, and it's beautiful music. Um, so, and I'm sorry, I said that they were returning in December, and they were returning in April. Um, anyway, so they get back to England, and at that time, Britain and Paris had started to have a um, homosexual relationship. Um, it was no surprise. He was already kind of smitten with him. And after his mother had died, he kind of clinged to finding, like, finally friends his own age. He had mostly hung out with people that were, like, his parents' age. Mm. And so he also then just kind of rested into Pears, who Pears became his inspiration. Um, Peter Pears and Benjamin Britten. Britten wrote more stuff for tenor because he was just feeding work to Paris oh. the entire time. So um, they go back. He writes some of his best uh, work at this time. Peter Grimes is probably still his most famous opera. And it's just because it's a very um, Britain, uh, a British story. And it's all about the same thing. Guy that does nothing wrong. Everybody thinks in this town that he kills this boy, but he didn't do it. Um, and it's kind of, no, just <laughs> um, of kind of going a little bit mad. So after Peter Grimes opens with huge success, he makes a whole bunch of other stuff, <laughs> which we won't get into. Um, and he just writes more and more operas 
through time, he becomes pretty popular. He also has like his decent amount of failures as well. No shock there, don't we all? Um, so come though the 1960s, and this was like his pinnacle height, he makes the, um, sorry, the Requiem Mass, um, and it's been hailed even by some of the world's, like, best musicians at that time, um, as truly a masterpiece. Um, let's see, I had a good quote. I will find it. Uh, that even Shostakovich said that it was out of this world, like, one of the best it's universally hailed as a masterpiece um, the greatest work of the 20th century and it's really he wanted to make this conglomerate mass for both world wars uh, he at the beginning of the 1950s he went over to uh, to Germany to host some concerts for victims that had fallen during concentration camps, fallen into concentration camps, and it forever changed him. Hence why everything he wrote since that point was so black and so dark yeah. about how how humans can do such evil things to other humans. Um, so to kind of find peace with that, he wrote the War Re Requiem, and if I cannot get an ad to pop up, that would be bomb. Um, this is in four seconds. I can skip this ad. Don't you guys hate that? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so annoying. <laughs> but this is the War Requiem. Re War Requiem. So that is a little piece um, halfway through. The uh, what made the mass kind of new and different and really awesome is just the composition is pretty state of the art. It was innovative and interwoven from the traditional Latin mass for the dead and the nine poems by the war English poet of Wilfred Owens was intermixed into it. So it's just this pinnacle of uh, how the British came out of the war. Um, stronger, united, something that was also um, new and evolved. Mm -hmm. Instead of just kind of staying behind, he kind of chose to take what had happened and for the first time, I think, kind of 
try to show that we should try to heal and move forward in a new, better way instead of just trying to rebuild and go back to the old way. Like Downton taught us. Like Downton taught us. <laughs> it all comes back to Downton. It's always back to Downton. Um, and it was hosted in the uh, in a church that had been pretty um, devastated by the war. And so after it got rebuilt, they had the first performance in it. And mind you, I made a note of it. And in all of my notes and scramble, I can't find it. So, uh, needless to say, at the end of his life, he uh, was writing um, a, another libretto and um, composition for a death in Venice, and while he was there, his doctors told him he needed to get to the hospital pretty promptly because um, he was having uh, heart valve failure. He had uh, the replacement was done in May of 1973, uh, and it was successful, but during it, he suffered a slight stroke to his right hand, so he never performed, he never conducted again. He wrote a little bit more music at this time, and in 1976, he was giving, uh, accepted a life peerage, um, the first composer so honored becoming Baron Britain, which doesn't happen often for musicians. <laughs> and uh, at that time, he died within just months after that. That was in June. He died in December of congestive heart failure, and he was given the honor to be buried in Westminster Abbey, but he had said that he'd rather not be, um, that he wanted to be buried so that pears in due course could be buried next to him. Oh, And so that is our, the life of Mr. Benjamin Britten. But did he die and did he get buried next to him? He did die, and he is buried next to him. Mind you, I also was reading some from a different article that it said, like, possibly why he died. Like, I don't think it's particularly true, but it said that maybe he had passed because Pears, while, was in, while they were in New York, had been a little promiscuous and had probably come down with syphilis himself and passed it on oh. to... Britain, and because he already had a heart problem, it, like, made him die younger. Because he was only, what, like, 62 or something when he passed? He was 63. 62. Um, mm -hmm. So, maybe not the, the happiest and cheerful, but there's so much of his music out there, and it's all very interesting. And he's pretty decently self-taught. Like, I feel like Frank Bridges really helped him, like, get it kind of a decent idea of what to do, but he, he didn't, like, grow up around music. I mean, his parents didn't even have a radio in the house, you know? Yeah, that's true. So It's, like, weird. All of would. the weird little <laughs> melodies that he'd make up were just kind of his own, and to him it made sense, you know? Um, that's true, because I feel like everybody accidentally plagiarizes, you know? Because hmm. you just, like, if you grow up hearing something... You're influenced you, by yeah. other people, you yeah. know? I guess not plagiarized, but, like, but strongly, strongly, strongly influenced. influenced. Yeah. yeah. And that makes complete sense to me. I think we all do it. But, I mean, just for him, I think it really is an original concept. Because I know right now when I teach voice students and I need them to learn something faster or just to get it in their ear, I tell them, 
shit, you have YouTube, you have Spotify, you have all these mediums, go and listen to it. Yeah. Where he didn't have that, so everything about his work, even though, like, at this time, recordings were pretty big, the, you know, a gramophone or a radio started getting in everybody's house, he could have been surrounded about it, but he just chose live music, never used, or, you know, was influenced that way. So mm-hmm. I thought it was kind of cool. And cool. very British, so it's to me very original, something that is part of their heritage. So I wanted to honor a little bit of what I love about British music with what I do. <laughs> but yeah, this was a fun episode for so me. What's his name again? I know it's not Benjamin Button, but I kept thinking Britain, that. like like the country almost. <laughs> but it's B R I T T I N, I think. B-R-I-T-T-E-N. Sorry. E-N. All right. So, that's that's my guy, Benjamin Britten. <laughs> His lover, Peter Pears. I think they're just great names. They are both Right? Really... BB and PP. <laughs> they're both very great. Very, like, British. Very names. British. <laughs> oh, speaking of, because we were talking about, on our last episode, like, or maybe we were just talking about this, um, like names that sound very British. Oh yes, and Archibald. I was watching. <laughs> I was watching that extraordinary home show on okay. Netflix that has like two British hosts, and well, I guess it's on BBC, but also on Netflix here. Yeah. Um, and the guy's name is Piers, which I was like, Piers oh. is such a British name. Yeah, or Pierce even. I feel yeah. like it's pretty, pretty British. Yeah. Lionel. Lionel, very British. That's a- Nice one. Nice one passed down. Well, I think this is an excellent episode. Thanks, Foggies, for being here. I want you to know I accosted some people at work today being like, are you subscribed to our <laughs> to my podcast? And, and they were all like, not, uh. So like, pull your phone out. That's okay. My husband yesterday was like, oh, you guys are still doing that? What? <laughs> I was like, where do you think I've been going every week? Mike! <laughs> Keep your shit together, man. <laughs> but he is subscribed because That's I right. stole his phone and subscribed him. <laughs> I know. I told people I was like, you better be writing reviews. So if you're listening to this, please review us. Yes, we love reviews. I'm only if they're good. I was about to say, I'm all like, oh. If, if you hate us, don't write a review. I looked at the map on our, you know, our publisher thing, mm-hmm. and we have somebody in Chile saying that they are listening so (laughs) as is tradition (laughs) i feel like i should look up um number one what did they just speak spanish in chile yeah damn it i mean they might might have they might have some like other indigenous languages okay well that didn't work out and i think we also got somebody in colombia in Columbia? I'm so excited about this. So, we see you. You're not forgotten. Yeah, we track you on our on our website. We're like Big Brother. We're always watching. We'll always know. <laughs> Alright, guys. Thanks for tuning in with us. Check out the Instagram. Yes, our Instagram, which is the London Pod Podcast. <laughs> We're still struggling. We the, don't remember what we named things. the London Fog Podcast, and then our email is londonfogpodcast at gmail.com. Yes. So just send us a note. We love you much, and keep drinking your tea. 
and I feel like I need to get back to finding a catchphrase like keep it in your pants I think I said that no, like nine times you said that episode. in the first episode and nobody likes that catchphrase <laughs> if you hate Kate's catchphrase email us no. so that she won't use it <laughs> keep it in your pants guys keep it in your pants all right cheers, cheers. <laughs>